Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christogenia Saturdays. This program is being pre-recorded for Saturday, August 21st, 2021. Once again, it is Wednesday morning, and we have our friend Truthvids here with us to discuss his 100 proofs that the Israelites were white. This is part 49 of the series. In our last presentation in the series, discussing the blessings of Ephraim and Manasseh found in Genesis chapter 48, we hope to have elucidated from certain prophecies of Isaiah and a discussion of early European history how those blessings were ultimately fulfilled. The denominational churches ignore these prophecies, which inform us of precisely where the children of Israel would go after escaping the Assyrians. It's only basically common sense to understand that nations which arise at that time came from the children of Israel. It's not hard to put together one plus one. The denominational churches willfully remain ignorant of the fact that the apostles of Christ went to Europe as well as to Mesopotamia and Anatolia because they knew where the children of Israel were scattered. Yet it was his knowledge of prophecy as well as classical history that gave Paul of Tarsus the confidence to tell the Galatians that the law was their schoolmaster to bring them to Christ, and to tell the Corinthians that all their fathers were under the cloud with Moses. So now we shall discuss this same development from a prophecy found in Micah chapter 4 from a slightly different perspective. Hello, Truthvids. Thank you for being here once again. Hey, Bill, thanks for having me. Yeah, so so here, um, once again, as always, we're going to see that um, many prophecies always tie together, and it's not always completely obvious and, unless you're actually studying it, right? And here we're going to see that there are, in fact, uh, many prophecies about America, that a nation so vast and so great doesn't go unnoticed in the Bible. It certainly is mentioned, and of course, Yahweh knew that one day it would come, and, and here we're going to see that it would be Israelites who would, who would make this great nation, that they would found it, that they would be Christians, uh, so they would be back with Yahweh once again. And, uh, you know, we briefly spoke about Ephraim, Manasseh, the British Empire, and, and you know, eventually this great nation. Well, here's another angle that, that proves that those people will be the Israelites, right? And uh, a great nation would have to be the Israelites. We can't imagine any non-Israelites making such a great nation uh, one time in the distant future from the captivity. Right, Bill? Well, absolutely. And and America, it, even though we hate the concept that it has become in more recent times, that there's um, there's nothing else that explains these prophecies but the formation of America, because it was the only nation that was ever purposely formed as a Christian nation. It, it was the colonists who came over here, the early colonists, purposely came here to form Christian states on, on this newfound territory, this newly discovered territory. Now, that didn't always have the 
ideal, it, it didn't always form itself. It, it didn't always come to an ideal conclusion because those states still fought with one another, that they still conquered one another. We still had the, the, the war of northern aggression against the South. And it, the colonists in Massachusetts, the Puritans were, were odd in their practice of Christianity. Let me just say they were odd in it, that they were um, extremely critical and condemning of others, it, it, well, the entire Yankee attitude, it, it didn't result in the formation of perfect Christian states, but they were founded with those good intentions, let me put it that way. Pennsylvania was founded by William Penn. He got that grant of land to form a Christian state purposely. The same thing with, with the um, Puritans in Massachusetts and, and with some of the colonies in the South. Yeah, Even and it's, the, um, it's interesting when you look at history. Um, I, I don't know the exact you know history of America because I'm not American, so I, I don't have the experience to have looked out, but I believe a lot of the first colonists were from north of England, from Scotland, from Ireland, and, and they were, you know, parts that were oppressed by, um, you, you know, London and, and southern England and the British Empire, and they just wanted to get away and have a free country, right, away from these kings and popes, and just, as you said, have a Christian nation. So perhaps that oppression was necessary to give them that drive to get away and form this nation that eventually became greater than them all, right? So, so all of history led to this, right? Well, well, that's true. But that oppression con continued here in America. That that ethnic and the ethnic and religious divisions in in northwestern Europe, especially in the British Isles, continued to affect history here in America. Absolutely. And, and those ethnic divisions, that they are, um, I, I don't want to say silly, but if we all came from the same place, ultimately, even though we had different treks to where we arrived later in history, we, each of the tribes had, and, and their divisions had different paths to the West, in spite of that, they all came from the same place originally, and they're all Christian. You would think that they would get along, but there was always the Jew in the background fueling one particular state against another, that they had always done that. And even in in America, Virginia was, was founded not as a Christian state, but as an economic enterprise. So you always had that rivalry in in interests with the Christian states when when you have economic enterprises trying to exist alongside of of religious states. You you're, you can only serve God or Mammon. You can't serve both. It's not possible. So ultimately, economics won, 
and the Virginia company prevailed. The interests, the financial interests prevailed over the religious in America, which is why we had that war of northern aggression, which is why America yeah. became an empire rather than a, a nation in, in, in a proper nation, let's put it that way. Or a company of yeah, nations. Yeah, and, um, you know, Europe w was never going to unite, right? Because th there's too much division. But uh, America, you did eventually um, start to get this one nation identity, right? Where everybody sees themselves as American. I I'm sure there's people who still consider themselves Southerner or Northerner, but generally everyone considers themselves one nation America. And that's how it just became so great, right? Well, well, right, but it happened by force, and that's what I'm trying to say. It, it happened by force and not by the natural inclination of men to cooperate. <laughs> it, it wasn't, it was exactly the opposite of that. It should have been from the natural inclination of men to cooperate, of white Christian men. When I say men, I don't mean anybody else. But the introduction of those others, the egalitarianism of, of the Jewish ideals of the French Revolution, took that they prevailed in the prevalence of the economic interests, which they always do. That's always how it works. That's the source of the sin of the ancient children of Israel in Scripture. That's why they were put out from ancient Israel. As it says in Hosea, you don't know that I gave you your wine and your corn and, and your oil. That that's They had to have those things from their lovers, which means the other nations that they were not supposed to do trade with. She shall follow after her lovers. I'm reading from Hosea chapter 2. But she shall not overtake them, and she shall seek them, but shall not find them. Then she shall say, I will go and return to my first husband. In other words, Yahweh was going to destroy all those other nations. For she did not know that I gave her corn and wine and oil, and multiplied her silver and gold, which they prepared for Baal. In, in other words, by serving these other nations, by trading with them, that was the culmination of their sin for which they were being put out of ancient Israel and sent into captivity. And, and it's, it is significant because it's mentioned throughout Hosea chapter 2. Yep, and now it's exactly the same, right? We're, we're trading with China and you know all, India and all those other countries, and they're getting everything from them. Well, absolutely. I mean, it began with the need for natural resources of, of certain nations. I, I mean, we, we need oil. We have to go elsewhere for it. We need diamonds. We have to go elsewhere for them or gold or, or iron or whatever that we need that we don't have sufficient deposits of in our own land. That's how it began, and it turned into seeking their labor and and moving manufacturing to the area where those resources are it it's a combination of things but it it's it started out merely as as an innocent seeking of mineral deposits or other deposits that we simply don't have a sufficient amount of 
and it turned into this global system of, of world trade and manufacturing that that we know as Mystery Babylon. So it, it's, yes, even though it seems to have begun for innocent reasons, it's evil, this modern world trade system, because we've destroyed our own people and purposely built up alien peoples so that they could manufacture things for us. It makes no sense at all. It, it's totally contrary to our own interests. No, no other race would... would it, it seems that no race based on that operated based on pure logic would ever do such a thing. It seems. Okay, that's digressions that we're probably getting far ahead of ourselves. The, the revelation won't be much of a factor in, in these hundred proofs, right? We're trying to establish who the children of Israel are and not what is happening to them. Even though that also serves as a proof, I guess. The further away the children of Israel got from Palestine, the more powerful they became. And, and this is what is stated rather explicitly in Micah chapter 4, verse 7. In preparation for this discussion of Micah chapter 4, we discussed the purpose of the last 26 chapters of Isaiah and when they were written, which also explains why, on the surface, it may appear to be a work separate from the first 40 chapters of Isaiah. Doing that, we presented brief commentaries on passages from Isaiah chapters 54 and 66, both of which reveal the origins of the Germanic people in the migrations of the ancient children of Israel, once the history of those migrations are understood. But before we begin, perhaps there is one more passage to discuss, which was written long before Isaiah, and which is found in 2 Samuel chapter 7. After having been established as king over Israel, David was in Jerusalem, as we see in 2 Samuel chapter 5, and the prophet Nathan was sent to speak with him. So we read where Yahweh had spoken to the prophet, and it says in part, Now therefore, so shalt thou say unto my servant David, Thus saith Yahweh of hosts, I took thee from the sheepcote, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people Israel. And I was with thee where, whithersoever thou wentest, and have cut off all thine enemies out of thy sight, and have made thee a great name, like unto the name of the great men that are in the earth. Moreover, I will appoint a place. Now, you would assume that the children of Israel already had an appointed place. Here, God is recognizing that David has been established as king over Israel, and all of the enemies are cut off in Palestine, in the land, the ancient land of Israel. And this is where David is sitting, in Jerusalem, which became the capital city of that land. But he says here in verse 10, Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them as if they hadn't been planted in a permanent place. 
that they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more. Neither shall the children of wickedness afflict them any more as before time. And as since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, and have caused thee to rest from all thine enemies, also Yahweh telleth thee that he will make thee a house, meaning that a reference to the, the future, then future temple, which David never built, which Solomon built. So we have this clear statement that spans two verses that Israel, Second Samuel chapter 7, verses 10 and 11, because 11 is part of the same statement. It actually spans all these verses are, are the same statement. The significant statement that the children of Israel would not dwell in Palestine forever, that they would have another place in the future where they would dwell. And in that place, they would dwell forever. Palestine was never a place of their own. They took it from the Canaanites. Here it promises them a place of their own, a place where at least no Adamic people had dwelt before. So the statement is significant. I don't know if you have um, anything to, you might want to add to that. Well, I was going to say that that can be used uh, to prove that it had to be Europe, right? Because if people insist that they went down uh, to Egypt, to Africa, well, people were already there. Or if they went to China, or you know, there were people already there that we can see that Europe was uninhabited. And so this only only works if they went to Europe, right? Which you can also prove with all the migration. Absolutely. And we have... Herodotus in 450 BC writing that there was nobody living north of the Danube River in what he had called Scythia, which was later known as, as parts of the Ukraine and Austria and Hungary and, and that area, Romania, modern Romania. We see that Germanic tribes had come to inhabit that, but they migrated in from Asia, according to all of the ancient records, both the Greek records, the Greek historians, and the classical, the, the not the classical, the Greek historians and the ancient Assyrian inscriptions and the ancient Persian inscriptions inform us that these people came from Asia, these Saka and Scythians, and began to migrate into Europe, Herodotus didn't identify them in that manner, but said that the people that were north of the Danube, in his time and experience, because he had visited Greek settlements on the Danube River, he said that they were merely colonists from the Medes. And, and we see the children of Israel were settled in the cities of the Medes by the Assyrians and in various other places in and around the Caucasus Mountains, the, the ancient nations of the Caucasus Mountains, the Araxes River and, and along the Black Sea. So this, that, that, this evidence is irrefutable that this is where the children of Israel went. 
these Scythians, these Cymri, Cimmerians or Cymri that, that the Assyrians had called them after the biblical name of King Amri. Yeah, and I believe north of the Danube would have all been swamps and heavy forests. You, you know, nobody wants to move to a place like that unless they absolutely have to, right? No choice. Well, right. And and that's why those same Germanic tribes, once they had migrated down the Danube River Valley, had tried so ardently to invade Rome because the land was so much more arable and and more appealing. Where, where it was very hostile. The climate was very hostile north of the Danube. Some of the ancient Greek writers couldn't imagine anyone wanting to live there. This idea that we spent, that the Germanic people spent tens of thousands of years in the frozen tundra, which some of these evolutionists have, is absolutely ridiculous. It's ludicrous because you would need a tremendous infrastructure. You would have to leave behind a tremendous infrastructure containing evidence that you dwelt in such a cold climate for so long. It was so cold north of the Danube that Strabo and other Greek writers could not imagine anyone living there on account of the cold. They didn't leave behind that infrastructure because they weren't there. There were no peoples there. Otherwise, we would see the evidence of the infrastructure. Instead, we only see barrows and, and temporary settlements from time to time. Yeah, and, and it's perfectly logical that if you're in a warmer climate, that you build up a civilization, and then with that technology, you're able to move into these colder climates, right? Uh, either by necessity, like the Germanic tribes, or for resources, right? Well, right. They they were constantly being pressured by tribes to the east, and they they basically migrated into Germany out of necessity. But the forests were very dense. There were very many swampy areas in northern Germany that were practically impossible to inhabit. So they were always pressing to the south and to the west until they couldn't press any longer under compulsion of force. Then when the Roman Empire fell, they poured into the lands of the empire, the former empire. That's probably a, 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 a topic of, of soon future presentation. Let me put it that way. At a near future presentation. I can't find my words this morning. I don't know why. I apologize. We'll, we will discuss the fall of Rome soon in connection with these proofs, because that's also a proof by itself, Daniel chapters 2 and 7. So here it is apparent, here in Second Samuel, it is apparent that the ancient land of Israel would not be the final and permanent home of the children of Israel, even if there are prophecies which suggest that they would one day return to that land. This is not the first passage in Scripture which makes such a suggestion. In Numbers chapter 24, in a prophecy of Balaam, who was blessing Israel, we read, Nevertheless, the Kenite shall be wasted until Asher shall carry thee away captive. Where it says, until Asher 
shall carry thee away captive. The children of Israel are the subject of that pronoun. Since Asher is the eponymous ancestor of the Assyrians, the Assyrian captivity of Israel was forewarned in that passage 800 years before it happened. In the words of Balaam, whom Yahweh had made speak, blessing Israel as he had attempted to curse Israel. Later, it becomes apparent that while some descendants of Israel had broken away earlier, even before the Exodus, and had established nations in Europe, the Assyrian captivity was ultimately the method by which Yahweh would fulfill the promises to Abraham, as that is when they had truly began to become a great nation and a company of nations in their own right. That the nations that were established in the early migrations did not persist into modern times, even though some of them in part did. Britain, for instance, and, and some of the colonies established by the Phoenicians are still there, and they're still under control of the children of Israel, but they didn't persist in their original form. Whereas the Trojans and the the Romans that we know as the, the real Romans, because the Italy is is a mixed nation now, the Romans didn't persist, the Dorian Greeks didn't persist, the Trojans didn't persist. There may be remnants of those people in those places now, but they didn't become that they didn't remain great nations throughout history, that they became marginalized in recent centuries, actually in the last 15 centuries. Or in the case of the Greeks, perhaps in the last 10 or 6, depending on what you want to count as the end of the Byzantine Empire after they lost most of their territory in the 10th and 11th centuries, they were pretty much marginalized. Hopefully, this shall lend sufficient background necessary to understanding Micah chapter 4. So the following is a condensation of just some of the remarks which I had made in a lengthy presentation in a commentary on Micah chapter 4, which I presented in March of 2014, but I do hope to add a few new perspectives here. In the first three chapters of Micah, there are pronouncements of judgment upon Israel and Judah, which would carry all the way to the gate of Jerusalem. We discuss the fulfillment of those judgments in the Assyrian invasions, that the kingdom of Israel would be lost, that much of Judah was also decreed by Yahweh to suffer likewise, and therefore many of them, even most of them who were found outside of Jerusalem, were also carried into captivity by the Assyrians. As I explained in our last presentation, Micah was a contemporary of Isaiah. Hosea, 
Micah, Amos, and Isaiah had all written around the same time, or at least at overlapping times. In the closing years of the nation of Israel, the, the northern kingdom, before it was taken into captivity. Isaiah wrote the longest of those prophets. He wrote all the way into the, the rule of Hezekiah and perhaps even after Hezekiah was dead. However, they all prophesied in the closing years of the ancient kingdom of Israel. And we explained that Judah, 46 fenced cities of Judah, were also taken into captivity in the time of Hezekiah, shortly after the fall of Samaria, perhaps 20 years after. We discussed in those first or earlier chapters of our Micah commentary the fulfillment of those judgments in the Assyrian invasions. However, in this fourth chapter of Micah, the focus changes, the focus of the prophet changes from the imminent destruction of ancient Israel and Judah to a vision foretelling what it was that would befall them in the future. And we read in Micah chapter 4, verse 1, But in the last days it shall come to pass that the mountain of the house of Yahweh shall be established in the top of the mountains. Now, right there, we should understand that mountain should not be taken literally, that it must represent something in the prophecy. And it shall be exalted above the hills, and people shall flow into it. Mountain is often used of great nations and hills as smaller nations in scripture, in, in prophecy especially. But the phrase last days, the last days, as it is in the King James Version, contains the Hebrew word akarif, Strong's number 319. And it is defined by Strong to mean the last or end, hence the future, also posterity. I don't know how he gets posterity. I haven't looked at every occurrence of this word in scripture. But for reason of its meaning, it was translated in the King James Version in a wide variety of ways. And it does not pertain only to the very end of the age, which in the Christian worldview means the time imminent to the second advent of Christ. Although Akarith is generally and wrongly interpreted in that manner. In fact, the apostles called their very own time the last days. In Acts chapter 2, verse 17, in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2, in 1 John chapter 2, verse 18. And, and John was quite confident in, in that passage of that epistle where, where he said, we know it is the last days. Yet at the same time, the apostles also considered the last days to be far off in the future in relation to their own time, and that's evident in Second Timothy chapter three, James chapter five, first Peter, second Peter chapters one and three, Jude chapter eight, 
Jude verse 18. I'm sorry, 1 Peter chapter 1 and 2 Peter chapter 3 and Jude 18. They all have references to a last days far off in the future, while they also use the term last days to describe their own time. So therefore, the meaning of the phrase is relative to its context. This is also evident in Genesis chapter 49 where concerning his sons, Jacob says, gather yourselves together that I may tell you that which shall befall you in the last days. If the things that befell Jacob's sons happened throughout all of the time immediately subsequent to Jacob and continued to happen well into the future, then the same is true here. The word means future. But in the future it shall come to pass that the mountain of the house of Yahweh shall be established in the top of the mountains. I don't know if you want to add anything to that. Yeah, the um, apostles must have realized that it was going to take a while for Christianity to spread, right? Because they saw the enormous task that, that it would take time, right? So, so when they say uh, in the future, they they must have understood that there was still going to be a long time before Christ returned, right? Well, absolutely, but they 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 had taught as Christ had wanted them to teach. They had taught that his return was imminent, because Christ Himself had said, "You don't know when it's going to happen," so they were compelled to teach that it was imminent, because Christians should act as if it is imminent. That's how Christians should live their lives, as if the return of Christ is going to happen at any moment. And that's what his parables teach in those respects. So the mountain of the house of the Lord. In prophecy, mountains and hills are often allegories for nations, great and small. There's no new mountain that's going to appear in Jerusalem in the last days or, or any other silly interpretation such as that. Notice that neither Micah nor Isaiah, in a very similar prophecy in Isaiah chapter 2, which I didn't get into here, neither of them say anything which indicates that some temple building would one day be rebuilt. Rather, they both said only that the mountain of Yahweh's house shall be established. <clears throat> this has nothing to do with the temple building and everything to do with the people of God. For the appropriate Christian view of the house of God is that God dwells in and among his people and not in a temple made with hands, as the apostles had explained. Earlier in our commentary on Micah, we had asserted that the meaning of the term Zion, when it is used prophetically, actually refers to the people of Yahweh. This assertion we substantiated by reading from Isaiah chapter 51, verse 16, where it says, And say unto Zion, Thou art my people. 
in the Psalms, in Isaiah, and in the prophet Joel, we see that Yahweh was said to dwell in Zion. But the actual temple of Yahweh in Jerusalem wasn't on Zion. It was on Mount Moriah. And both of those places were names what were names of mountains in old Jerusalem, Zion and Moriah. They were two different mountaintops, two different peaks in Jerusalem. So they couldn't be confused in that context. The temple was built on Moriah, not on Zion. So where Yahweh was said to dwell in Zion, that's a reference to the mountain of his people. The people being the mountain. So Zion is used as an allegory for the people. Say unto Zion, thou art my people. While Moriah is a term, a Hebrew term, which means chosen by Yahweh, apparently the term is not used in the prophets, even upon searching the Hebrew form. However, it is also said of Israel that they are indeed Yahweh's chosen. Isaiah chapter 41, verse 8. But thou, Israel, art my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the seed of Abraham, my friend. So perhaps with the children of Israel being chosen by Yahweh to be his people and his dwelling place, the two terms converge, the meanings of the two terms converge in an allegory of their own. Bill, do you think it's interesting that um, Zion starts with a Z and it's often used kind of in the end times that, you know, he'll dwell in Zion, meaning us people. But clearly uh, in the original Hebrew word, Z wasn't the last letter. So so it's funny how, how Yahweh did that, that it would, that, um, you know, once we got English and, and our other Germanic languages, that Z would be the last letter and it, and it often is talking about the end times, right? It's just a funny coincidence. Right, even in Greek, the Zeta was closer to the beginning of the alphabet. I don't know how it got to be the last, and and that evidently happened in Roman times. I'm not entirely sure. I'm not entirely sure if the Romans had an order to the alphabet that was recorded. I, I I'd have to go looking. I never saw a, an ancient Roman dictionary, right? <laughs> Only modern Latin ones that are arranged after the English order of the letters. But that Z fell to the end from the beginning of the alphabet, yes. Which is interesting. So once all of this is understood, it becomes evident that the mountain of the house of Yahweh must refer to a great nation of his people, which is formed after the deportations of Israel and Judah in the last days or future relative to the time of the prophecies which Micah had already uttered concerning the destruction of the kingdom of Israel which stood in his own time. And the truth of this interpretation becomes fully manifest once we encounter verses 5 through 8 of this chapter of Micah, which we will get to here, I pray. So, Micah chapter 4, verse 2. And, of course, this makes no sense if it's speaking about a literal mountain. <clears throat> and many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of 
of Yahweh and to the house of the God of Jacob. And he will teach us of his ways and we will walk in his paths. For the law shall go forth of Zion and the word of Yahweh from Jerusalem. Nations are properly people groups and not governments or geographical areas. In order to find the fulfillment of this prophecy, we must find a great nation which other nations have flowed, which the people of other nations have flowed into. This great nation would govern with the law of God as its guide and the word of God as its inspiration. Of the utmost importance is the description that this nation, which is the mountain of the house of Yahweh, which is established, is also of the house of the God of Jacob. This means that the people groups of this nation, of which this nation is comprised, must be of the descendants of the ancient Israelites, and not some strange people, the modern concept of the church, right? who have somehow replaced the ancient Israelites. If this prophecy is fulfilled, or if it is being fulfilled, we must therefore identify a great nation which was founded on biblical principles, and which therefore also must be a Christian people. Those who reject Christ have not God, according to both the Apostle John and Christ himself. The people of this nation must also have their origins and history in biblical Israel. If all of these criteria criteria are not met by at least one nation in the world today, then Micah's, Micah's words are for naught. They are meaningless. Furthermore, the criteria infer that there are also other nations in the world which are of the children of Israel. And perhaps I should have written the criteria imply <laughs> that there are also other nations in the world which are of the children of Israel, those from which the many people flow into this great nation. We read in Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 14, Turn, O backsliding children, saith Yahweh, for I am married unto you, and I will take you, one of a city and two of a family, and I will bring you to Zion. So we see the pattern which ultimately created America had been followed or, or had been described by these prophets. Now, this also is the way that Europe was founded. The nations of Europe had actually come to be in the same manner, where certain people of tribes that were in the East or in Mesopotamia had, had migrated and formed nations in Europe. So you could say that that pattern is the natural pattern by which we've spread throughout the world and it is, but it's described in these prophets that it would happen to the children of Israel. And, as we shall see, that they would become more powerful the further away they, they, they traveled, the further away they migrated. So, in Micah chapter 4, verse 3, 
and he, referring to the God of Jacob, shall judge among many people, and rebuke strong nations afar off, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up a sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and none shall make them afraid, for the mouth of Yahweh of hosts has spoken it. And of course, we still have war with us today, and therefore this part of the prophecy is not yet entirely fulfilled. Much of the prophecy describes a gradual or an eventual result, as I've also explained in my commentary on the Revelation. All of these things are processes, and that is also evident here in the subsequent verses. They don't describe an immediate result. Here in this chapter, we see the final result which all Christians, of which all Christians should have an expectation. This nation, is the, which is the mountain of the house of Yahweh, is evidently destined to be the nation through which Yahweh ultimately executes his judgment of the world. However, judgment starts at the house of Yahweh itself, and therefore this nation must somehow first be brought to obedience in him. So we read in verse 5, For all people will walk, every one in the name of his God, and we will walk in the name of Yahweh, our God, forever and ever. And of course, Yahweh is the God of Israel, and only of Israel. He's not the God of everybody in the world. He showeth his word unto Jacob, his statutes and his judgments unto Israel. He has not dealt so with any nation, not even with the other Adamic nations. And as for his judgments, they have not known them. Praise ye Yahweh. And this verse from the 147th Psalm clearly states that Yahweh is only the judge of Israel. And here in Micah, we read that all who are not of Israel will walk every one in the name of his God. From Psalm 96, verse 5, For all the gods of the nations are idols, but Yahweh made the heavens. This verse, in relation to this great nation, is a refutation of humanist universalism that insists that all people should worship the same God. After the judgment of Yahweh, if you can find the gods of the other peoples, perhaps you will find those people. As Jeremiah says in, in twice in the prophecy of Jeremiah, a very similar statement is made in chapter 30 and in chapter 46. But we will read in chapter 46, where the word of God says, Fear thou not, O Jacob my servant, saith Yahweh. For I am with thee, for I will make a full end of all the nations whither I have driven thee. But I will not make a full end of thee, but correct thee in measure. 
yet will I not leave thee wholly unpunished. That full end of all these other nations must correlate with the judgment of God promised here in the final verses of this chapter, which we have yet to, to see, but we will get to them soon. I don't know if you have anything you want to say. Yeah, I was going to say it's just like um, before, right? When he deported us, uh, he destroyed all those lovers, right? All those nations for Yahweh is a jealous God and he's going to do the exact same thing uh, again, right? It's just going to repeat. He's going to obliterate all these, uh, you know, chinks and, and packies and all, all of them. They're all gone, right? Eventually. Well, right. They, they have to. They have to be all gone. Otherwise, the word of God isn't true. And to this point in history, the word of God is proven true again and again and again and again. So we can't take for granted that it won't be completely fulfilled. That would be silly. The word of God is completely true once we realize who the people of God actually are and not the Jews. If you want to believe that the Jews are the people of God, then the whole Bible becomes a joke. And even the Jews themselves stand in mockery of it. And, and also, ju just that verse, it, it clearly implies that there'll be a great Christian nation, at least originally, but there'll be other nations which aren't Christian, and there are other people with their own false gods, right? And, and that's exactly what we have now. Well, absolutely. And, and this will also, this same circumstance will also be described in the later verses of this chapter, that that is the circumstance under which we are living today is absolutely manifest as, as we're being over overflowed, we're being overrun and flooded with people of other races and other nations, if you could properly call them nations. Verse 6 of Micah chapter 4, In that day, saith Yahweh, will I assemble her that halteth, and I will gather her that is driven out, and her that I have afflicted. These are all references to the children of Israel in captivity. And I will make her that halted a remnant, and her that was cast far off a strong nation. And Yahweh shall reign over them in Mount Zion, from henceforth, even forever. The phrases, heard it halteth, heard it is driven out, heard it I have afflicted, and heard it was cast far off, all refer to the children of Israel in captivity. And, and who did Paul go to? Who did he say he was going to bring his gospel to? But people of distant nations, and he went to Europe. Paul, at the same time, had said that his labors were on behalf of the 12 tribes of the children of Israel in Acts chapter 26. And, and I believe his statement that he would go to distant nations is both in Acts chapter 15 and in Acts chapter 22, at the end of his speech to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, when he was arrested in the temple, and they wanted to kill him for that. 
Depart, for I will send thee far hence unto the nations. Acts chapter 22, verse 21. And the Jews gave him audience unto this word. And when he said that word, then they lifted up their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth. It is not fit that he should live. So the Jews wanted to kill Paul for bringing Christianity to people of distant nations. The strong nation made from her that was cast far off must ostensibly be one and the same as the nation, which is the mountain of the house of Yahweh, described in verses 1 and 2 of this chapter. In order to understand the prophecy, we, we must honestly attempt to follow the children of Israel in their exile in the period following the deportations. And this is the primary difference between identity Christians and Judaized Christians. Identity Christians actually believe the prophets and the word of God, rather than attempting to set them at naught. The Jews were not cast far off in the 8th century BC. But those who would later be Christians were cast far off. They weren't Jews. If the Jews were the people of God, we should be able to find establishments of Jews, not in other nations, but as many nations, in the period subsequent to the Assyrian and Babylonian captivities. And we don't. We don't find Jews anywhere. Not even in Judah. It's incredible. Just a trail of destruction, right? Wherever they went. Decay and destruction, yes. That they, even Judea ended in destruction. It's constant revolts and uprisings against Rome. Although the Judean historian and Levitical priest Flavius Josephus had confused Israelites for Judeans using the language and Judean perspective of his own time. Concerning the Israelites of the Assyrian captivity during the time of Ezra the scribe, when Ezra had received permission from the Persian king to lead a group of those Israelites who were in exile back to Judea, he wrote in Antiquities, in Book 11, when Ezra had received this letter, Josephus wrote in Antiquities, Book 11, I should say, when Ezra had received this letter, he was very joyful and began to worship God and confess that he, meaning God, had been the cause of the king's great favor to him. And that for the same reason, he gave all the thanks to God. So he read the letter at Babylon to those Judeans that were there, but he kept the letter itself and sent a copy of it to all those of his own nation that were in media, meaning the Israelites that were formerly deported in captivity. They didn't all go to Europe. Many of them stayed in media. And when these Judeans... So Josephus improperly identified Israelites of the Assyrian deportations as Judeans. 
When these Judeans had understood what piety the king had towards God and what kindness he had for Ezra, they were all greatly pleased. Nay, many of them took their effects with them and came to Babylon as very desirous of going down to Jerusalem. But then the entire body of the people of Israel remained in that country, and this is Josephus's perspective. So by Judeans, he seems to have meant only those of Judah who were in Assyrian captivity. Therefore, there are but two tribes in Asia and Europe subject to the Romans, while the ten tribes are beyond Euphrates until now, and are an immense multitude, and not to be estimated by numbers. Since not many more than 42,000 people ever returned to Judea with Zerubbabel, Nehemiah, and Ezra, that could hardly be all of the people of Judah in the Assyrian captivity which took place over 200 years earlier and consisted of several hundred thousand people from Judah alone, according to Assyrian inscriptions. Most of the 42,000 had returned from Babylonian captivity. And then, when the priests became corrupted, Ezra sent for some priests out of Cassiphia, a town in one of the places where the Israelites of the Assyrian captivity were resettled. Cassiphia being in ancient media on the coast of the Caspian Sea. That shows you that um, most of the Israelites had just moved on, right? They didn't want to come back. They had, they just wanted to move on and uh, either stay there or perhaps join the others migrating into Europe, right, eventually. Right. Jos- Josephus mentions the Alans, I believe. And he talks about the Parthians and Scythians in a way that reveals that he understood many of them to be Israel, that they were of Israel. I believe he mentions the Allens in a book in Wars. I think it was the Allens. Anyway, they were one of the Scythian tribes that were in or around media at that time. So he mentions a war that they had in his wars of the Judeans. And simply doing that, he identifies them as some of the people of Judah in the Assyrian captivity. Simply by mentioning their war in his book. And his book was written to the northern barbarians hoping that the northern barbarians would join in the Judean war against the Romans. That's why he wrote the Book of Wars of the Judeans. That's the explicit purpose that he explains that he had written the book for. And he originally wrote it in Aramaic, and Aramaic was the lingua franca of the Babylonian and Persian empires. And he expected them to understand it as they were still living within the rule of those empires, even though in the the time when Josephus wrote, they were under the rule of the Parthians. 
And the Parthians would have also been included in the people that he wanted to convince to join the war against the Romans. While the children of Israel and many of the children of Judah were at this time dwelling beyond Euphrates and in those places where the Assyrians had originally planted them, and while their numbers were indeed quite large, they did not all stay there. Josephus was ignorant of the people who migrated up through the Caucasus Mountains. He wouldn't have known about them. He had no reason to know about them, or, or, or perhaps he had no way of knowing that those migrations had begun to occur many centuries before his own time. But in fact, in the 7th century BC and after, new groups of peoples, theretofore unknown, would begin to appear in the historical records, and the origin of these can be considered to be Chimerian and Scythian, peoples who were actually one and the same. And these names did indeed belong to the Israelites of the Assyrian captivity. Examining all available historical records, from the 5th century BC, which was the time of Ezra, to the 1st century AD, which was the time of Josephus, no so-called Jews ever dwelt north or east of the Euphrates in any significant numbers. However, here Josephus considers the Israelites of these regions to be an innumerable multitude. Examining those same records, except for ancient nations such as the Medes and Persians, who were known to the writers of Scripture from the days of Moses, there are only the Scythians, Chimerians, Parthians, and related tribes dwelling in those places, and they were indeed an innumerable multitude. Other places in Josephus corroborate this assessment that it was indeed these people to whom he was referring, such as in the preface to his first book, Wars of the Judeans. And I discussed that at length in several papers at Christagenia, but especially in classical records of the origins of the Scythians, Parthians, and related tribes. Now, before we continue with Micah, we shall briefly examine a second witness, which is an apocryphal book of scripture that is not necessarily canonical. I am not advocating this book as being canonical or part of our inspired word of God, but which indeed dates to no later than the first century AD. And the book, known as Second Esdras, and it can be found in certain editions of the King James Apocrypha, I believe. No, it can't. I'm sorry. Only First Esdras is in the Apocrypha. It's a pseudepigraphal book. The book known as Second Esdras is actually considered to be at least three different works concatenated into one. And that assessment by mainstream academics is probably accurate. I, I accept that. It seems certainly to be the case that it's actually at least three different books. Or at least one book that had a beginning fixed to it, a beginning two chapters, I believe, fixed to it, and several chapters added to the end 
at diverse times. So the portion cited here is from the portion which scholars call 4 Esdras, which is apparently the oldest and it is the largest portion of the book. From 4 Esdras chapter 13 verses 39 through 45, And whereas thou sawest that he gathered another peaceable multitude unto him, 4 Esdras chapter 13 verse 39, those are the ten tribes, now I'm in verse 40, which were carried away prisoners out of their own land in the time of Hosea the king, the king of Israel, whom Salmanasar, or Shalmanasar, the king of Assyria led away captive, and he carried them over the waters, meaning the Euphrates, and so they came into another land. And because an identifiable remnant called Judah was left behind by the Assyrians, which also consisted of much of Benjamin and even Levi, the fact that most of Judah and Benjamin were also taken by the Assyrians is always overlooked by the ancient writers. It, it's just overlooked. It, it's, so they divide these tribes into ten and two or nine and a half because of Levi, and two and a half. So we read in verse 41 from 4 Esdras chapter 13. But they took his counsel among themselves that they would leave the multitude of the heathen, the other Adamic nations among whom they were settled, and go forth into a further country where never mankind dwelt, that they might keep there, keep their statutes, which they never kept in their own land. And they entered into Euphrates by the narrow places of the river. For the Most High then showed signs for them, and held still the flood, till they were passed over. For through that country there was a great way to go, namely of a year and a half. And the same region is called Ar-Sareth. The first home of the Cimmerians in Europe is esteemed to have been in the Hungarian plain in what is now eastern Hungary, bordering on Romania. And in Romania, there is a river, and of course the border between Hungary and Romania did not exist back then. In Romania, there is a river called the Seret River to this day, which actually has its sources in Ukraine, and empties into the Black Sea from the northwest. The word Arsareth can certainly be interpreted to mean mountains of Sareth, or Seret, referring to that river. The 5th century Greek historian Herodotus wrote that in his time, the lands north of the Danube, which he personally visited, were uninhabited except for some colonists from Media. To the Greeks of the 4th century, this was a part of the homelands of the Galatahi, and to Tacitus, in the 1st century BC, it was part of Germania, Germany. The deported Israelites certainly fit the description of colonists from Media. From Isaiah chapter 43, 
from the opening verses. <clears throat> but now thus saith Yahweh that created thee, O Jacob, and he did form thee, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed thee. I have called thee by thy name. Thou art mine. When thou passest through the waters, I will be with thee. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow thee. When thou walkest through fire, thou shalt not be burned, neither shall the flame kindle upon thee. So Isaiah foresaw Israel in migration. That passage from Isaiah should be compared to the one which we have just cited from 2nd Esdras. Having also Isaiah 66.19 in mind, Isaiah 66.19 was the subject of our presentation last week, as it details all of the places where Israel would be scattered, initially scattered, I should say. And they are found throughout Europe, from that Black Sea region as far west as the Iberian Peninsula. And that yeah, is and, the... Um, Bill, if you look on just like a, would you call it, like a geographical map of Europe where you see all the mountains, you can see that there's this massive mountainous range uh, on the east of Romania. So if you're passing through, either you find a passageway through that to Romania around that Syrup River, or you have to head down into Thrace and Greece, or you have to go all the way up north towards Poland, right? So it makes sense that that's where they would come in from the Ukraine and then maybe start passing through uh, through that Romania region. So, so it makes complete logical sense just looking on the map, the, the, the path um, our ancestors would have taken, right? Absolutely. And, and the Cimmerians ended up in northwest Germany and and later on in history they were still fighting the Romans in the first and late second century BC and they were called Cimmerians by the Romans. They were still called Cimmerians by the Romans that late in history. It wasn't until the time of Julius Caesar that the term Germania or German was coined by the Romans to describe the Galatahi that were north and east of Gaul, or or Roman Germany even, the, the portions of modern Germany that Rome did conquer, which are all west of the Rhine. So it was Caesar, I believe, that was the first in writing, in the surviving records, I believe it was Caesar that was the first to call them Germans. He didn't necessarily yeah, coin the term. And because he won and Augustus uh, published all his books, of course, the name became popular, right? Because his side won. Yes, of course. And, and Bill, it's interesting that um, the, where the Israelites say, look, let's just get away from this place and these people and head north and, um, you know, so we can follow our own laws, that even the historians, Homer, and I believe Herodotus said that the Scythians were amongst the most noble people, right? Because they hadn't been corrupted by, you know, money and, and the Greek culture, right? That was an implication that was definitely made by Tacitus. And I believe it was implied by Herodotus, but I can't particularly remember it. Did, did Homer yes. not say the noble mere most noble people in the world or something like that? Okay. 
I, I mean, that's acceptable. I, I don't remember this, the, the statement. I'm sorry. But oh, okay, it, okay. I'll take I'll take your word for it <laughs> that it's in there. Certainly, you've probably read Herodotus much more recently than I have. I believe. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it's kind of fresh on my mind, right? Yeah, it's twenty years ago in mine. Longer. I hate to admit it. <laughs> so with with what we've just explained in mind, Isaiah. That citation from Isaiah and and from Second Esdras and those proofs that it's the children of Israel that are migrating into Europe. To repeat verse seven of Micah chapter four, and I will make her that halted a remnant, and her that was cast far off a strong nation, and Yahweh shall reign over them in Mount Zion from henceforth even forever. And the further away the children of Israel traveled from the place of their captivity, the stronger the nations which sprang from them. And we could see these stages in the development of the modern West, from the ancient Saxon kingdoms and then to the Germanic Holy Roman Empire founded by the Frankish kings, and then to the British Empire and ultimately to America. Verse 1 of this chapter describes, of Micah, Micah chapter 4, describes America perfectly where it says, But in the last days it shall come to pass that the mountain of the house of Yahweh shall be established in the top of the mountains, and it shall be exalted above the hills, and people shall flow into it. In our Revelation chapter 12 presentation, given here 10 years ago, I had said America is the first and only nation to have been founded as a Christian nation, or actually as a federation of Christian nations, which are the original individual states. And just as the dragon tried to kill Christ, the Christ child as soon as it was born, the international Jewish bankers have tried to destroy America ever since it was born. It should be without doubt that America is the nation foreseen at Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 14, where it states, Turn, O backsliding children, saith Yahweh, for I am married unto you, and I will take you, one of a city and two of a family, and I will bring you to Zion. While there are other prophecies in Isaiah chapter 66, Daniel chapters 7 and 12, and elsewhere, which are certainly referencing this same nation, it is evident that Micah chapter 4 is the most complete prophecy of America in the scripture. So where it says, and, and what, where I had referred to Daniel chapter 12, the intention was to refer to the last verse of Daniel chapter 11, which informs us that the glorious holy mountain is between the seas. It is also no coincidence that America as a federation of nations was founded 2,520 years after the Assyrian deportations began, which is a time 
times and half a time twice or for seven times or seven 360-year periods of punishment. Continuing with Micah chapter 4, verse 8. And thou, O tower of the flock, the stronghold of the daughter of Zion, unto thee shall it come, even the first dominion. The kingdom shall come to the daughter of Jerusalem. And most, at least, if not all, of the mainstream commentaries ignore this connection. It is to this verse in Micah that the words of Christ recorded in Matthew chapter 21, verse 43, should be cross-referenced, where he said to those in Judea who had opposed him, For this reason I say to you, that the kingdom of Yahweh shall be taken from you and given to a nation producing its fruits. The tower of the flock, the stronghold of Zion, is the stronghold of Yahweh's people in their captivity. Once again, this must represent that nation described by the phrase mountain of the house of Yahweh in the opening verses of this prophecy. The word daughter in prophecy represents a colony or a nation which had sprung from another. So we see terms such as daughter of Tyre, daughter of Sidon, daughter of Babylon, etc. in the scripture. Therefore, Daughter of Zion must be a nation sprung from ancient Israel, and Daughter of Jerusalem, a capital city among the people of Israel, which had also sprung from the same source, from the ancient Israelites. Bill, um, when I made a video saying that the America was the first Christian nation, I had some people uh, argue that, well, uh, France, the, the first Franks, they immediately converted to Christianity and formed a Christian nation, uh, you know, as the Franks. Or um, by the time Alfred formed his nation, it was a Christian nation. So they argued that America was not the first Christian nation. Well, what, but, but that they kind of converted, right? And they weren't all Christian. There were still pagan elements. America was the only one where everybody was Christian. And they had, as you said, the intention of going to found this new Christian nation, right? So w- would you agree with that? Well, well right. When, when the tribes in Europe had become Christian, they were all already established as nations. That's the difference. Yeah, so, so even though, um, you know, when England was born, that the people were already there, it's just it got a new name and, and uh, came under Wessex rule, but it was already there and they were pagan before, right? The people were already there. They were already established in their customs and their laws. That they already had their developing culture. So they were already nations. They weren't a nation formed for Christian purposes. They were already formed as pagans. So even though under the Holy Roman Empire the form of government changed. It really didn't change because they were they were still subject to their kings 
to the same kings that they were subject to before they were Christian. So I'm, I don't know how this could possibly refer to the tribes as they were already established in Europe when they became Christian. Of course, there were changes in politics in Europe after those nations became Christian. But those changes in politics, who's to say that they wouldn't have happened anyway in spite of Christianity? Of of course they may have still happened. Of course the more powerful kings would have found another way to exert their rule over the people. Because the people always had kings. All throughout their history in Europe they had kings. And all throughout the history of Europe they had empires. Another way to determine the identity of the children of Israel is in the prophecies of Daniel, in Daniel chapters 2 and 7, which correlate with the same history. However, that has already been the subject of a separate discussion in these 100 proofs in Proof 12, yet we will continue to discuss those chapters of Daniel here in the near future, within the context of this proof and Micah chapter 4. When we discussed it in Proof 12, it was in a different context, in the context demonstrating that the beast of which the Book of Nezar was the head of gold, this beast that was a series of four empires that ruled wheresoever the children of men dwelt, had always ruled over the nations that ultimately became white Christian Europe. They just didn't rule over all of the territory. They didn't all rule over all the territory that the Romans held. But with each empire, they expanded as the people themselves had expanded, following the same pattern of the expansion of the people, going in the same direction, north and west, not to Africa except for the white portions in Egypt and Ethiopia. So continuing with Micah, chapter 4, from verse 9. Now why dost thou cry aloud? Is there no king in thee? This is Yahweh addressing the children of Israel in captivity. Is thy counselor perished? For pangs have taken thee as a woman in travail. Be in pain and labor to bring forth, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in travail. For now shalt thou go forth out of the city, and thou shalt dwell in the field. Thou shalt even go to Babylon. There shalt thou be delivered. There Yahweh shall redeem thee from the hand of thine enemies. And we have already discussed the similar language of Isaiah chapter 66, concerning the woman in travail when we made that presentation here last week. So we see that without a doubt, these prophecies are connected. The children for which the woman travails are the nations which were to come from ancient Israel. Babylon is ostensibly a prophetic reference to mystery Babylon. Ancient Babylon is actually a type for mystery Babylon. The international mercantile system of the woman's future, the woman meaning Israel, 
And we now live under that system today. So from Babylon, we still hope to be delivered. And this is real. This is material. When common law ruled England, there were no laws that protected lenders, that assured that lenders, people who loaned money at usury, would be able to recover the value of their loans from the property of a borrower in case the borrower had defaulted on the loan. So with the introduction of Jews into England in significant numbers and the Jews being moneylenders since Christians were forbidden to loan money at usury, but they still borrowed at usury, these laws that formed the basis for English commercial law and mortgages and, and loans of that sort were taken from the Shitar, which is a section of the ancient Babylonian Talmud. And it's all adversarial to the word of God because we shouldn't be borrowing money at usury. We shouldn't be compelled to borrow money at usury in order to operate in society. So that connection of mystery Babylon to Babylon, it's, it's a material connection. There's no doubt that the connection is valid. Once we understand where English commercial law had come from where it came. And that's the um, whole point, isn't it? To deliberately bank you so they can seize uh, your property and assets that's the real plan uh, absolutely right, buddies use absolutely that's what they that's what they hope for and that's why they manipulate the economy with periods of inflation and deflation and and other currency crises so, so that they can steal the property of the nation through their banks well, hopefully we'll be delivered from Babylon before the last of us are infected with COVID vaccines or other poisons, which are forced upon us for our own good by the same international Jewish merchants and their agents. Now it's we're going... interesting that in Revelation it warns against the pharmaceuticals, and here we see the ultimate cultivation, right, with this uh, push to vaccinate the whole population. Absolutely. Now we see a parallel to yet other prophecies, such as the Camp of the Saints prophecy found in Revelation chapter 20, and it reads in Micah chapter 4, verse 11, Now also, many nations are gathered against thee that say, Let her be defiled, and let our eye look upon Zion. But they know not the thoughts of Yahweh, neither understand they his counsel, for he shall gather them as sheaves into the floor. And this verse cannot mean to refer to the sieges of Israel in the time of the deportations, because at that time the enemies of Israel were successful in overcoming them, as Micah had already told them that they were going into captivity and that they had no recourse in the matter. Yet here, from verse 12, which we've just read. It is apparent that the enemies of Israel will certainly fail 
and that they themselves will be gathered as sheaves to the floor, which is a description reminiscent of the fate of the tares in the parable of the wheat and the tares in Matthew chapter 13. It is the threshing floor where the wheat is separated from the tares and the chaff. This prophecy must therefore be correlated to other similar prophecies, such as those in Ezekiel chapters 38 and 39, in the 118th Psalm, and, as we had just mentioned, in Revelation chapter 20. We shall not describe all of those similar prophecies here. I'm sorry. I just want to say, so so the prophecies of Micah, they they imply that, um, as you said, the Israelites will be flowing to this great nation, do, do they also imply that other races will be flooding as well, or is that more the um, camp of the saints prophecy? Well, I believe that that's the same as what we've just read. Many nations are gathered against thee that say, let her be defiled. And that's what's going on right now. Not only in America, but in all of Europe. Yeah, that they all they all hate us. They all want to come here, but ultimately they want us gone. They want to destroy us, right? Well, absolutely. Let her be defiled. That that's all this race mixing, the promotion of race mixing that we see all around us today. And this is affecting every white Christian nation. It started here, in my opinion. It didn't start here. It started with the Muslims in in medieval Europe. But in the modern age, these last several hundred years, it basically started here. This breakdown of of, um, ethnic identity and the promotion, the open promotion of race mixing, I believe started here in the modern world, in the modern age. Yeah, you, you already had nigs over there, right? We didn't have them in Europe. There were laws in in 15 states, there were laws against mixed marriages with Negroes until they were struck down by a court decision here in 1980. That's pretty recent. Of course, there were states here that didn't have such laws or that at one time did and most states had done away with those laws by 1980 of their own volition. We won't describe all of those similar prophecies here. Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39, it's too much for this one presentation, of course. But they all foretell the gathering of the nations against the children of Israel in the last days. And the destruction of all of those nations, the ultimate destruction of all of those nations by the God of Israel, a prophecy which is summarized in the account of the camp of the saints in Revelation chapter 20. And there we read, And when a thousand years are expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison and shall go out to deceive the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, the number of whom is as the sand of the sea. And they went up on the breadth of the earth and compassed the camp of the saints about and the beloved city, and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. So that is parallel to these two verses of Micah in chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. 
So this fourth chapter of Micah concludes in verse 13. Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make thine horn iron, and I will make thy hoofs brass, and thou shalt beat in pieces many people, and I will consecrate their gain unto Yahweh, and their substance unto the Lord of the whole earth. And just as in Revelation chapter 18, the people of God who come out of Babylon partake in the vengeance which he shall execute against his enemies. Now, this isn't a presentation on prophecy. This is a presentation on history. But nevertheless, I I would like to conclude with Obadiah, the people of God shall be that fire come down out of heaven, which destroys the allies of the devil. As we read from a similar prophecy in from Obadiah verse 15, for the day of Yahweh is near upon all the heathen or nations. As thou hast done, it shall be done unto thee. Thy reward shall return upon thine own head. For as ye have drunk upon my holy mountain, and that's what all these other races and peoples who are have come into our lands are doing right now. They're drinking upon Yahweh's holy mountain, which is a reference to the people of the children of Israel. So shall all the nations drink continually. Yeah, they shall drink and they shall swallow down and they shall be as though they had not been. But upon Mount Zion shall be deliverance and there shall be holiness. And the house of Jacob shall possess their possessions. And the house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, as we read here in in Micah, this fire come down out of heaven. I'm I'm sorry, in, in Revelation chapter 20, the fire come down out of heaven. And the house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau, meaning the Jews, for stubble. And they shall kindle in them and devour them, and there shall not be any remaining of the house of Esau, for Yahweh has spoken it. Of course, my original commentary on Micah chapter 4 was much longer, but this should be sufficient for our purposes here, where I seek to show the, the connection of the people as the Mount Zion. Zion represents the people of Israel everywhere in prophecy yeah and the jews always try and twist that to a location uh, or you know like the third temple uh, when it's clearly always talking about the israelites his people right they always try and twist that they they have to twist the prophecies and they have to distract christians with these weird interpretations of just a few prophecies to make them believe in a personal antichrist meaning one individual who's going to rule the whole world in the future and and torture everybody for seven years or at least torture christians for seven years that that's they believe in that oddball interpretation of scripture and in a rapture that the good Christians are going to magically be taken out out of the world and and lifted up into heaven physically, fly like Superman, I guess, and and 
they won't have to suffer the fate of being tortured by the Antichrist. That these ridiculous and childish interpretations of Scripture distract people from learning the, the real story that the Bible is telling. Yeah, and um, I, and we kind of touched into it, but all this, you know, why everybody's flooding into our nations on YouTube, These those are the most common uh, comments I always get that, oh, well, so this, this is why they hate us, or this is why we're being overrun. And it starts to click, you know, with people because they're searching for why it's all happening and, and the Bible explains it perfectly to them. So you just hope that that they'll come to that conclusion, right, as uh, things get worse. Well, well, I pray because this is the only truth. There's only one truth, that there are not multiple truths that parallel one another in this world. This is the only truth. And it's the same pattern we see in the book of Judges. Every time the children of Israel went off into some sin, they were ruled over by other nations and punished until they repented. And that's exactly what's happening now. Of course, Yahweh God foresaw this sin, but we are in a state of sin, a serious state of sin, because we accept adulterers and fornicators and sodomites into our company. We do business with them. We buy and sell and trade with them. We enrich them. And, and because we accept these people, we deserve this punishment of being overrun with other races. And we're going to be punished in this manner until we repent. It's real simple. You don't want to suffer the punishment of, of being overflowed with aliens and ruled over by aliens which is already happening then stop sinning it's real simple <laughs> stop sinning repent and appeal to god and this will end yeah that's the next step for them to realize that that they need that repent and turn to yahweh that just understanding this isn't going to change anything unless you actually repent right with much wisdom comes much sorrow, and, and that's absolutely true in this context as well, because we've been blessed to know what's happening in the world around us as it transpires, but we can't do anything about it, and we're, going, we're only going to have sorrow un, until people wake up and, and repent, but they're not going to awaken until they realize they're being punished. They don't even know they're being punished. They're relishing in the punishment. They don't mind at all that little Susie, the, the pretty blonde with blue eyes, brings home Kunta Kinte for a husband or, or some ape for a husband. And, and they think it's all wonderful because they're worshiping those same apes as they watch football and, and television programs and movies. So their progeny is destroyed forever, and they don't even realize the, the, the gravity of that. They're just blind to it. They actually think they're doing God a favor. So how long is this going to go? Who knows? Maybe until there are only eight unvaccinated white folk left. <laughs> yep, absolutely. I think uh, 
the next few years are going to be very uh, sad, right? With with everybody getting the vaccine, but whatever has to happen has to happen, right? Right. So things are going to get worse before they get better, and and our government is going to become increasingly tyrannical and oppressive, and inflation is going to run away, and taxes are going to go up and up and up. It, it's going to be more of the punishment we've had until we realize that we're actually being punished. It, it's incredible that most Americans think that this is normal, that, well, now there's a new normal that's even worse than the old normal, but the old normal was not normal. <laughs> when half of your income goes disappears in taxes, that's not normal. And, and the, the ancient children of Israel wanted a king and it was a horrible thing to imagine that a king was going to take 10%, a tenth of their income. And today it's half. It's much worse. It's more than half in many cases. And, and you might look at your tax rate and say, oh, no, my tax rate's only 28%. Well, that's your federal income tax rate. That Half of your income easily disappears in hidden taxes and other taxes, excise taxes, that are part of the purchasing price of food and, and other things that you require. Yeah, um, in the UK, if I'm not mistaken, uh, petrol, or I think you call it gas, 80% um, of the price is um, tax, right? So <laughs> the government just takes it all. Right. Taxes, taxes. I, I mean, some of the taxes are for infrastructure, and that's the way they choose to build infrastructure. That's, that, that's fine. I mean, people have to build roads, right? But most of those taxes disappear in welfare programs and other unnecessary political activities. Okay. I, I guess that's, a, that, that's part 49. Yep, America, the uh, last great uh, country from or nation from the children of Israel, right? Right. There, there, there is no space left on the planet. There is no other nation. This is yeah, the end. Nowhere of, else to go. There's nowhere else to go, right? Um, unless global warming is true and Antarctica suddenly becomes a paradise, <laughs> which somehow I doubt. <laughs> there's nowhere else to go. So this has to be it. This has to be the valid interpretation of these prophecies. There's no other developments in history that this may describe. This is it. And therefore, we that's another way to know that this is true. Okay, thank you for being here. All right, thanks for having me. Bill, praise Yahweh, God of Israel, God of the European race. Thank you. Praise Yahweh. God of no other race.